uh, Jen and I, when we bought our first house, it needed a lot of work. A lot of work on the outside, a lot of work on the inside. And uh, three of the jobs that we identified that we were going to tackle were going to be uh, retiling the floor, retiling the shower, and uh, retiling our bathroom floor. Those were our three jobs. And we got in there, and one of the first things we did uh, was the kitchen floor. Uh, somebody helped us get started, and then Jen and I finished it out, and honestly, it went pretty good. Uh, but uh, we, our life was really crazy. The list of things that we wanted to do was much longer than we had the capacity to complete in any reasonable amount of time. Uh, Jenna was pregnant. Jenna was working full time. I just started my uh, first ministry job. And so our life was absolutely nuts. So we did the kitchen floor and we thought we'd move right onto the shower wall. And it took months and months and months. And by the time I got to the shower wall, I'd forgotten everything. See, I'd only done it one time. I needed repetition because I forgot. What do you do between two and three? What do you do between five and six? I, I forgot. Plus, I'm a bumbling idiot when it comes to all things handy. And so there we were, and it looked terrible, uh, all because I hadn't had this repetition. It wasn't in my subconscious. Think about driving around. Uh, I hope that you, uh, if you start a new job, that by the 10th day or so, uh, you don't have to put in Google Maps uh, where you're going. Uh, you're using a lot of data, by the way, if that's what you're doing. But see, when we drive, when we live in a place for a long time, we don't think about, oh, I got to turn a left on Broadway. I got to take a right on Virginia. I got to take a left on the New Circle Road. We don't remember, we, we don't think that. It's just unconscious because we have repetitively done the same thing over and over and over again. We learn by repetition. And this is what the author of Judges is doing to us as the readers, as the hearers of this book. Last week we saw this cycle, the cycle of rebellion, retribution, uh, repentance, and rescue. And we're going to see that happen over and over and over again. Except last, last week, it was more just in theory. It was just explaining, hey, this is what we're about ready to experience. And today, uh, we're going to deal not with it in theory, but in practice. So we had it explained last week, but this week is the first case study. And there's going to be several more case studies to come. And this is what the big chunks of chapters 3 through 16 are really all about. And so our, our, our one for tonight, uh, the, the particular judge is Othniel. I've been calling him Big O all week. And um, the particular enemy is Kushan Rishathaim. Kushan Rishathaim. Othniel and Kushan Rishathaim. Uh, and let's read it together. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushon Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushon Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The word of the Lord. So what we just read, this is the simplest case that's given to us. 
Uh, it, it, it seems rather skeletal. It lacks details. Uh, there's no plot expansions. Uh, there's uh, no development of character. There's no speech of any kind. But its brevity functions as a model by which all the rest of the judges will be interpreted. So Othniel is the model leader. There's nothing negative that you can say about Othniel, which is intentional, because the remainder of the judges have some really obvious flaws. And so when we walk through our text tonight, what we're going to see are, are the same four cycles, but with different words. Not because I gave them different words, but because it's a different way of looking at it than it was last week. So our, our, the four cycles are going to be, it's going to start with forgetfulness instead of rebellion. Then it's going to move on to oppression instead of retribution. And it's going to be crying out instead of repentance. And then it's going to be rest instead of rescue. So forgetfulness, oppression, crying out, and rest. I couldn't get four R's. Uh, I couldn't get them all matched, so there you go. So the first one, forgetfulness. Look at verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil on the side of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. So last week we saw that it started with rebellion. Because God's people did exactly what God told them not to do. And that was worship the gods of the Canaanites. And this worshiping the gods of the Canaanites, this is called idolatry. This is breaking of the first commandment. And this week, the evil of the Israelites is explained as forgetting. Forgetting the Lord, their God. In fact, this is the only time that this word forget is used in the whole book of Judges. So this insertion of the word is notable. But forgetfulness, it, it provides us an angle on idolatry that's needed for us to have a really fully orbed understanding of how idolatry operates in our lives. See, we usually think of forgetfulness, and we think of it as being morally neutral. We think of it being like forgetting your phone charger when you go out of town. You didn't try to forget it, therefore it's not a sin. But in the original language, this word forget, it means to disregard it means to not take account of. It's a word with spiritual consequence, just like its opposite is, the word remember. And when people forget the Lord, it means that they are no longer controlled by what they know. Let me put it another way. Though they knew who God was and they knew what God wanted, those things that they knew were not real to them. They knew something in their heads, and they forgot it in their hearts. It's like a bucket of water. You put a bucket of water in, in, in below 32 degrees, and the top of it is going to start to freeze over. And if you don't want it uh, to freeze over, you're going to have to consistently take a, a pick, take a hammer, to keep the ice from forming on the top so it doesn't freeze up. Our hearts are in danger of freezing over because of our forgetfulness unless there's this consistent work of remembering being done to keep the ice broken up. Use another illustration. It's like a coin. You put a coin in a Coke machine, and it gets stuck halfway down. That's what happens to the gospel. The gospel goes in our heads, but somehow it doesn't make it all the way down. It gets stuck somewhere along the way, so it doesn't hit our hearts. So why do our hearts freeze over? Why does the coin get stuck? Well, look at verse 7. Yes, we forget the Lord. We forget the Lord because we're idolaters. Our idols become more real to our hearts 
than the gospel. And so we serve them instead. So we have to do this, this really hard soul work of forgetting our idols, breaking up with our idols, and remembering the Lord. But what does this look like? What does it look like to forget our idols and remember the Lord? Well, forgetting our idols is fighting our sin. But remembering the Lord, what does remembering the Lord look like? Well, I think there's an individual aspect to it and there's a corporate aspect. The individual aspect is meditation. It's meditation upon the gospel as it's found in God's word. That's how we remember the Lord. That's how we get the ice pick out. That's how we shake the Coke machine so it ends up in our heart. And, but when we think about meditation, we usually think about Eastern, Eastern religion. We th- that's what Eastern religions practice. We usually think of, uh, of it being detaching from the physical world so that we can connect with the spiritual. We think of it as an emptying exercise, but the scriptures view it as a filling exercise. Meditation, according to the Bible, is filling our minds with the truth of the gospel. And the Bible is full of commands to meditate on the scriptures. You see it in Deuteronomy 6. You see it in Joshua 1. You see it in Psalm 1. You really see it when Jesus says to abide in him in John 15. But meditation is hard for us as Westerners because it forces us to slow down. It forces us to not settle for a mere cognitive understanding of God's word. It forces us to not just know the scriptures, but to apply them to our lives in the here and now. It forces us not just to read God's word and then move on to the next thing, but to allow God's word to serve as a bag of tea that seeps into every corner of our lives. As a bag of tea to seep into our heads so that it gets into our hearts. That's the individual aspect, meditation. That's how we break up the ice. But there's a corporate aspect, and it happens right here at this table. The aspect of remembering the corporate aspect is through the Lord's Supper. See, Jesus has given us this glorious physical tool as a reminder of his atonement for our sins. You know the words. We say them every week. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So this remembering has moral consequence. See, I say frequently when standing at this table, I say that the sacraments are the gospel in 3D. So you didn't just hear the gospel here from the pulpit this morning. You actually got to see it in two different ways. You got to see it in the baptism. Mackenzie and Jack got to feel the gospel in the water, though there's nothing special about that water. And you and I get to see and taste and touch the gospel right here at this table. There's this added dimension in the sacraments that enhances our memory of our Savior. And it's available to you every week in worship. That's why coming to church is important. Because the only way to remember the gospel in this way is in corporate worship. But when we forget to meditate, when we're not meditating and we're not feeding on Christ and His his body and His blood, forgetfulness is our default. It was for the Israelites. I mean, God responds to their forgetfulness. He responds to their amnesia with anger. Look at verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. I think what's going on here is God is refusing to let his people get cozy in their sin. 
So what does he do? What does he do to keep them from getting cozy? He sells them into slavery. I know that doesn't sound like to salvation to you and to me, and it really isn't. But if it forces Israelites to lose their grip on idolatry, then it might just be the beginning of their salvation. And the Israelites aren't any different than us. We usually need God to bring suffering in our circumstances for us to wake up to the dark realities of our own heart. We don't know how spiritually enslaved we are. We don't know that judgment is coming until God lets us taste it in our physical lives. So when you see it from this angle, when you see God's anger from this angle, you see it as God's kindness to us. Uh, I know the day's coming. Eden is eight years old. And it's not going to be too much longer until she's a teenager. And she's already exhibiting signs of having a really hard time getting out of bed. And I think I'm going to uh, copy my dad's, uh, what my dad used to do to me. And he used to t- have water in a cup. And he would put his hands in there. And he'd flick something on my face like this. And I'm close to doing it to Eden. And I think this is kind of what God's doing to us in our suffering. He's forcing us to wake up from our stupor. But we don't think of God this way. And it's because we don't hear churches and we don't hear Christians talk this way about God. The church and other Christians, they usually make us feel like something's wrong if we're not happy, healthy, and wealthy. But, if, but to equate God with suffering in any way whatsoever is unfathomable to most American Christians. Yet the author of Judges says right here very clearly that he, that God is the one who sold them into slavery. It's kind of like, if you're with us this summer in July, it's kind of like God sending a whale to save Jonah. Do you think Jonah liked being in the belly of a fish? You think that would reach his top 10 most pleasurable experiences in his life? Probably not. But it was God's severe mercy to him. It was God's mechanism for saving Jonah's life and waking him up. So what about you? Have you realized that God's willing for you to be oppressed in order to confront you for your idolatry? The truth about idolatry, loving anything more than God, is that it always leads to oppression. Every single time. What starts out as a fairly innocent slip-up turns into a life that's centered on getting your next fix. That fix might be something sexual, it might be substance-oriented, but it's possible that your fix comes from an unexpected source, a respectable source. Maybe the fix you need is money. And not money so that you can go do something crazy, but money so that you can provide a a more secure future for yourself. And so what your life looks like is moving from one financial goal to the next. Because your heart can't be content with the fact that God himself is the only one who can promise you security. But you look for it in your finances. Maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you're hooked on helping people. And maybe you're enslaved to surrounding yourself with people who need you. It feels good to help somebody, and that's normal. But what's not normal and what is bad is that it's really dark when we gradually slip into a Messiah complex. Where we think if we're not the one who meets this person's need, then who is? Don't you see that as slavery? Don't you see that as being oppressed? 
So don't blame it on anybody else. Don't blame it on your personality. Don't blame it on your circumstances. God put you in your oppression, and today, maybe today, he's splashing water on your face to wake you up out of your stupor. The cycle. Forget, oppress, and then verse 9, they cry out. You see it there in verse 9? It says they cried out. Last week, uh, we saw that the Israelites groaned. And it's similar. Crying out nor groaning can be, can be um, our equivalent to repentance. This crying out is just a cry of pain. It's just a cry for help. And so here you have it. These people are in distress. The Israelites, their circumstances are unbearable. But God has their attention. And he has their attention, even if it's somewhat superficial. Even if it's, they're only asking for circumstantial relief and, they're not, and they don't have a heartfelt repentance because they see their sin. A really good friend of mine, uh, this has been a while back, um, he spent, uh, I met him here downtown and, uh, and we got really close and we got really close over the course of several months and then he was arrested uh, and he went to prison. He went to prison for five months and uh, before he left, he was in a pretty dark place. I mean, we, we got along great, but uh, he, at times he could be a really hard person to be around. Part of it was due to his alcoholism. But when he was in prison, uh, one thing that happens when you're in prison is that uh, you sober up. <laughs> Your lack of access dries up. And so he sobered up. Um, he started reading his Bible and read it constantly. He said he read it cover to cover at least five times. And then he got out. And when he got out, he came back to Lexington, and I got together with him, and he really did seem like a totally different person. Not just because some of his behavior had changed, but his whole demeanor. I mean, I was like, where did you come from? What happened to the guy I used to know? And both he and I, we attributed to the Lord, did something in his life. Well, because, uh, because the alcohol wasn't part of his life anymore, and because uh, things were a little different for him, he was able to, to find a place to live, a stable place. He's able to find a stable job. And so as he became established, he began to slip back. He began to slip back into his old ways. And actually, he got worse off than he was before he went to prison. Now, I don't know. Did he really repent when he was in prison or did he just cry for help? It's really hard to say. But it seems to me that this was just a cry for help. See, when you really repent, you ask questions like this. Why has this trouble come? What flaws in me might God be revealing? How might I need to change and grow? See, this is the right response to oppression. It's this. It's to see God's hand working behind and through our painful circumstances so that we might take an honest look at our own lives. You know, it's really comforting. God took it. God didn't say, all right, uh, you just cried out, uh, so I'm not going to rescue you. No rest for you, Israelites. He took it. He accepted that as enough for him. And his intervention in, in their life as a nation and in ours, his intervention, thankfully, it's, it's based solely on his compassion for us and not on the depth of our repentance. So he responds and he gives them rest. Look at verses 10 and 11. Let's read it together. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. This is Othniel. 
and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushon Rishathaim. So the land was at rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, he died. So this deliverance, it comes through this man named Othniel, who we haven't talked about at all. Uh, Othniel, we actually uh, mentioned, I mentioned briefly in the first sermon on Judges, because you see him in chapter 1, verses 11 through 15. What you learn about him there is that he's a man of exemplary faith. But his qualifications in those five verses and in these, his qualifications are scant, except for two. You saw them in verse 10 and 11. The first one is that he's raised up by God. The second qualification is that he's filled with God's Spirit. That's his resume. Just like God had caused their oppression, now he's causing their deliverance by delivering them through Othniel. See, God's empowering of Othniel is obvious. If you look at uh, chapter 1, verses 11 through 15, he's just a, a minor Israelite officer. That's all he is. Then here in Judges 3, 7 through 11, he's the ruler and conqueror of a world-class enemy. Mesopotamia was one of the leading forces, political, geopolitical forces in the ancient Near East. And this minor officer takes him over. How was that? It's because God had raised him up and because he was filled with God's spirit. So Othniel, he comes out of nowhere. But this, is, this frequently happens with God. As he raises up people who come out of nowhere. I think this was the way it happened with Jesus. See, in the Gospels, we hear this man named Jesus, and he goes uh, to the synagogue. And he goes to the synagogue most, on most Sabbaths, which was common. This was common what most Jews did. And he did what most of them did, and he would go in, sit in the pew, and go through the service. Except one day. There was one day when he was just sitting there as a normal parishioner, just like you, and out of nowhere, it was not in the bulletin or, or, or anything, and he gets up. There's a attendant standing there. He grabs the scroll out of his hand. He undoes it and reads Isaiah 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I know that's unusual, but things get even more unusual when he hands the scroll back to the attendant and he said, this scripture has been fulfilled today in your hearing. And the people look around, they're like, uh, brother, the passage you just read is about the Messiah. You're saying that's you? You know what they did to Jesus, don't you? They drove him out of town. See, the Spirit of the Lord was on Jesus, and he didn't overcome his enemies with military force like Othniel. He, overcome, he overcame his enemies through his death and his resurrection. The people of Israel, they only had rest for 40 years, but the people who entered Jesus' rest is eternal. And Jesus' victory was final, and now he invites you to come and enter that rest. But he's got one qualification for you. He says, you have, if you want to enter my rest, you have to be weary and heavy laden. 
But if you are, your rest will be full and it will be eternal and victory is sure. So who saved the Israelites? God? Or Othniel? I'd ask you to raise your hand. But it's a trick question. And the answer is both. Let me ask it a way that's a little more personal for me and for you. Who brings deliverance in the here and now? God? Or the church? You know the answer this time now, don't you? Both. Some of us answer that God is the one who brings deliverance. And we say things like this. We say, hey, without God working in and through us, we can't do anything. And at that, we should all applaud. Right answer. But I think some of us who use this kind of language, it's, this is really just uh, this is really a card we're playing to avoid our responsibility. Others of us, uh, we hear that question and say, who, 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 who's responsible for bringing redemption to the world? God or the church? We'd say the church. The church is, is Christ's body. So let's take the world for Jesus. That's good and noble. Applaud you too. But many of us, even with our best intentions, when we move out in this way, we're doing so with arrogance. We're doing so with a lack of dependence on God's spirit. So friends, let me implore you. Enter Christ's rest. Lay it down. You are weary and heavy laden. Just admit it. And in your weary and heavy laden state, God is calling you and he's calling me to bring deliverance to this world. Let's pray together. Lord, what a glorious privilege it is uh, that you have called us as filled with your spirit as chosen by you uh, to enter this world. And Lord, may we proclaim this rest that's available to all who are weary and heavy laden. Lord, thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.